Can you think of a time when someone helped you out of a jam? And, and the real question is, is when you found yourself stuck again, did you reach out to them again? I can remember a time when uh, a loved one reached out to me again and again and again. And uh, in order to protect the names of the guilty, uh, I'll, I'll change their names. Let's call this loved one Elisa. Um, for years, Elisa refused to use a smartphone or invest in a smartphone. And for years, Elisa would get turned around on the mean streets of D.C. and Northern Virginia. And so Elisa would call me. She would call me and give me her cross streets. I'd pull up Google Maps, help her find her way around town, uh, and then off she would go. Uh, and then sometime later, uh, Elisa would get turned around again. And she'd remember, oh, yes, Mike helped me in the past. He can help me again. So she called me again, and we go through the routine again. And, uh, well, it's, it's been some time now, but Elisa has finally invested in a smartphone. And she has, um, uh, she's finding her way around town just fine. Uh, but I still enjoy it when she, she calls me, even after 16 years. Uh, in, in my life uh, and in your life, I'm sure there are times where you remember past situations where you found yourself stuck or in something of a jam and you've, you've called and reached out to someone and they've, they've helped you. Uh, and perhaps you've done it again. But we, we all experience that kind of thing. And the reality is, is that our memories of what we've experienced in the past, the, the relief, the, the rescue, the restoration that we've received, it gives us confidence in the present to reach out again, to, to plead with somebody to help us again. Well, something of that dynamic is what we see happening in the psalm that we're looking at together this morning. We're looking at Psalm 126, where the people of God are encouraged to look back to the past, remember what God has done for them, and to plead with Him in the present. Let me invite you to go ahead and open your Bibles, turn in your copy of God's words to Psalm 126. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage on page 517. 517. When you arrive there, uh, you will notice that at the top there, there's an inscription, a song of ascent. Derek mentioned that this is part of the, the playlist for the ancient people of God. I think I've used the, uh, the mixtape version of that same idea over these last several weeks. These are the songs that pilgrims sung. Uh, they were probably eventually compiled as a complete set sometime after the Babylonian captivity. And here in Psalm 126, as we study, we learn to ponder God's past restoration and to plead with God to restore us again. You see, even though we have received a great blessing in the Lord Jesus Christ, it can still be true that there are a great many burdens pressing upon us day by day. The Christian life, as you know, can go up and down. What should we do when we're in a situation where we are, are greatly burdened, maybe even dry in heart and soul? Well, Psalm 126 teaches us to ponder God's past restoration and blessing and to use that memory recall as encouragement to plead with God to act to restore us again. So here's the main idea of Psalm 126. Ponder God's past restoration and plead with God to restore us again. That's the idea that we find in Psalm 126. See if you can spot that for yourself as I read now. Read Psalm 126. A song of a sense. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams 
in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. I hope you can see that this psalm, it falls into two distinct halves. Verses 1 to 3 make up that first half where the psalm is really looking back, pondering what God has done in the past. And then verses 4 to 6 is, is a prayer really in the present, pleading with God to restore his people again. And we're going to unpack this psalm under those two sections and under these two headings. First, ponder God's past restoration. And second, plead with God to restore us again. Let's begin with that first point, ponder God's past restoration. And follow along once again as I read the first half of the psalm this time, verses 1 to 3. When the Lord Yahweh restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. I hope you can see how this psalm, it, it looks back. You see it in the kind of the past tense language several times through words and phrases. When the Lord restored, when we were like those who dream, our mouth was filled and the Lord has done great things for us. There's this pondering that's going on here in this first half of the psalm. And at the time of this restoration, you see there's almost kind of delirious happiness, it seems. They were overwhelmed. They, they thought that they must have been dreaming their was a definite joy and experience during that restoration in the past. And still there's this appreciation for it in the present, isn't there? We said in the last three words there, verse 3, we are glad. Have you ever, in, in a present moment, kind of looked back on some event in your life and, and delighted in what God has done? A couple of weeks ago, my wife and I were sitting on the, the couches in our living room, and we were looking through old family photo books uh, and just remembering what the Lord had done for us, how he had sustained us through different kinds of sorrows, how he gave us uh, encouragement in various places we went. We were looking back, thinking back on the goodness of God to us. Maybe you've done that yourself. Maybe you've looked at some old photos yourself, or maybe you've perused some, some past journals. You've reflected upon how the Lord has acted in, in response to some great need you had. Well, that's the experience that's going on here. And that, of course, raises the question, is, is when did this restoration take place? And as with so many of the Psalms, we're not given the, the precise event that the author himself had in mind. Many scholars, though, have keyed in on that word restored there, and they've concluded that the Psalm is probably looking back on the time when God returned his people from exile, from captivity in Babylon. Uh, some of your Bible translations may actually communicate this idea um, that they, the word restored can also be translated returned. And though it's not a close case, I think that's a reasonable conclusion. Uh, and for our purposes, what happened in the restoration of God's people and their return from exile provides, I think, a useful framework for us for unpacking the, the meaning of this psalm. So we need to think a little bit about biblical history and the exile and the return from exile. Uh, the exile, as you may know, is one of the major events that the people of God endured in the Old Testament. And God actually predicted that the exile would take place. And the exile, it took place when God thrust his people out of the promised land for their sin and rebellion against him. It was something of a replay of the Garden of Eden, if you'll remember that. Remember in the Garden of Eden, God gave Adam and Eve a command that they were to keep. And they disobeyed that command. They broke that command. They rebelled against God. And so they were thrust out of the garden. 
Well, at Mount Sinai in their history, uh, God made a covenant with the people of Israel. He gave them commands that they were to keep. And he told them that if you, if you do not keep this covenant, you're going to be thrust out of your land. Well, as history went on, sadly, the people of Israel, they rebelled against God like Adam and Eve. They set their hands to things that God had said, do not take, do not touch, do not pursue. And so as a consequence of their rebellion and sin, God removed them from their land. That happened uh, in several movements. The, the major movements we know were um, in 722 BC when God raised up the nation of Assyria to, uh, to come and conquer the northern kingdom and to carry uh, the northern kingdom off into exile. And then a number of years later, at about 586, 587 BC, depending on how you count it, God raised up uh, the, the Babylonians to, to conquer the southern kingdom of Judah and to carry the, the, the people of the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, out, uh, in, out of their homeland. They were made to, to wander, if you will, like, like Adam and Eve were made to wander outside of the garden. And in that conquest, the, the capital city of Jerusalem was, was crushed uh, with its religious uh, center, the, the, the temple also uh, broken apart in, in many ways. Uh, the, the Babylonians uh, ran right over Jerusalem, as it were. And Israel's history, it, it clearly reveals God's sovereign hand. Uh, God sovereignly gave Israel a land, and he sovereignly took it away by raising up these nations to remove his people from their land. And still, uh, God shows his sovereign hand in their history as well as promising that they would one day return from exile as well, that there would be a restoration. He gave these promises through prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. In fact, I want you to see some of these glorious promises of restoration for yourself. So turn, if you can, keep one finger here in Psalm 126 and turn to Jeremiah chapter 33. Jeremiah 33, if you're using one of the Bibles provided, that's on page 662. I want us to read some of these glorious promises of, of restoration for God's people. Jeremiah promises that God would restore their fortunes. Take a look there at verse 7. Let's begin reading in verse 7. I'll read through verse 11. Jeremiah writes, I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me. And I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And this city shall be to me a name of joy and a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. Thus says the Lord, in this place of which you say, it is a waste without man or beast in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate without man or inhabitant or beast. There shall be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voices of those who sing as they bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as it first says the Lord. Well, you see there in these promises from Jeremiah that God promised to restore the fortunes of his people. That he would restore their capital city. He returned them to corporate worship. But most importantly, most importantly in Isaiah and Jeremiah's prophecies, they speak about the removal of their transgressions and sins, the forgiveness of sins that's available to God's people. Well, God, he did, in fact, keep his promises. He did restore his people's fortunes 
after 70 long years in exile, something surprising happened. Something only God could do. Something that God predicted he would do, and in fact did do. Under the ministry of the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah, he promised that a ruler named Cyrus would would come and set God's people free, return them to their homelands, and return them to corporate worship. And even though the prophets predicted it, God's people were still surprised by it. The nation that had conquered Judah, Babylon, was itself conquered, and the king who conquered Babylon, Cyrus, set God's people free. And it's such a remarkable event that, again, if you can still keep that one finger in Psalm 126, I want you to turn over now to Ezra chapter 1. So you're headed, I think, back towards Genesis at this point. Ezra chapter 1. It's on page um, 389 of the Bibles provided. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job. So you're finding those books around there. Uh, you'll, you'll land upon it soon, just after Second Chronicles. Ezra chapter 1, when you get there, you'll notice that the very first verse of the book of Ezra is mentioning how God uh, kept his promises through the prophet uh, uh, Jeremiah. And then we pick up reading in verse 2 and look at this restoration that takes place under Cyrus. And Cyrus is speaking here. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem." I wonder, just looking at those verses, do you, do you hear what Cyrus is saying? He's saying to the people of Israel, you get to go home. You get to go home and rebuild your, your, your temple, rebuild your society. And by the way, if you would be so good as to take some silver and gold and cattle and other goods off the hands of your neighbors, we would be most grateful if you would do this. And if you, you turn back to Psalm 126 now, if you've kept your finger there, I hope you have. Um, it's on page 517, I think, of the Bible's provided. But, but if you, you see there, the, the very last words of verse 1, we were like those who dream. It's just so, so remarkable to have Cyrus saying, go home, rebuild your, your community, uh, rebuild your country, and take silver and gold and cattle and everything you need with it. It's, it's almost, you can imagine these pilgrims returning home saying, uh, look, can you just pinch me? I, I need to know if I'm dreaming. This seems too good to be true. That's the experience that the people of God had in their return from exile. They were set free from their bondage and from their captivity. The door was open for them to return home to the worship of God. They were given uh, the, the, the things they wanted to do most, and it was glorious. And you see there that our psalm, it describes... This language of almost delirious happiness. There's that language of dreaming, but then, then we see that their mouths were filled with laughter and their tongues with shouts of joy. I mean, wouldn't you be happy if somebody handed you a bunch of money and all the supplies you need and said, go and do what your heart longs to do most. Go and worship the God that you love and long to be near. Yes, this restoration was so great that even the nations testified that God had done great things for his people. I mean, you imagine uh, those who were having to hand over their silver and gold and their cattle and their goods saying, the Lord really has done great things for them, right? 
But even when they return, if, you were to, if we were to keep reading in the book of Ezra, you'd get to Ezra chapter 3. And, and Ezra there tells us that the people of God shouted so loudly with joy that people from neighboring nations could, could hear the, the testimony of their joy. They were delighting in God. He was so good to them. And verse 3, you'll notice there, it takes the testimony of the nations and it makes it a song of praise in the present. The pilgrim singing this song on the road to Mount Zion for festival worship recalls just how good God has been. He gets to return to corporate worship because God has returned and restored his people back to their land. And this brings great gladness. I wonder, how how does a portion of God's word like this relate to us? How ought we to think about this as, as New Covenant believers in this era? of redemptive history. What applications can we draw from this passage? Has God restored our fortunes? What great act of reversal and rescue and restoration that God has done for us that should bring us just great joy? It might surprise you, maybe not, but I think that our restoration, the restoration that we have experienced, is even greater and richer than what the ancient people of God experienced in their return from the promised land under Cyrus. And that's not to take anything away from that remarkable and amazing work that took place. And yet, it's right for us to say, even reflecting on that restoration, God has done great things for them. And yet, God purposed and planned to do more. He has done great things for us in Jesus Christ. You see, though the the ancient people of God had physically returned from exile, there was a sense in which the restoration that Isaiah and Jeremiah foresaw was not entirely complete when they had returned to their land. Even after the temple was rebuilt and worship was resumed, um, the ancient people of God, though rightly glad for this restoration, still longed for something more. You know, a moment ago I mentioned that there were heard shouts of joy in Ezra chapter 3. But the truth is, is that Ezra also recounts the older saints uh, weeping because they're seeing this temple rebuilt. And, and, and they're remembering the temple that was before, and this present temple is only a shadow of the former glory of the temple that was there. They knew that, that something uh, was, was missing. And added to this fact that their nation from time to time, it would still be ruled by by wicked scepters and foreign kings. God's Messiah and King had not yet come to save his people from their sins as those great promises of the restoration reminded us. Right? And that's the restoration that Jesus has come to complete and accomplish in his work. The The restoration that we should regularly rejoice in and remember. Because the truth is, is that we need to be rescued and restored. Like Adam and Eve, like the ancient people of God, we too have rebelled against God. We have broken God's commands and we deserve to be forever exiled from his presence. But God, in his kindness and in his son, Jesus Christ, has begun the work of restoration that Isaiah and Jeremiah spoke about. When they, when they spoke about God cleansing his people from all of the guilt of their sins and forgiving his people from their rebellion against him. So if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've been washed in the blood of the lamb and your sins, though as scarlet, they've been made white as snow. Or to use the language of Jeremiah, you've been 
cleansed. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your sins have been forgiven. God has released you from the great debt that your sin has incurred because Jesus paid it all in his death on the cross. Jesus not only paid for our pardon, but because he was raised from the grave on the third day, he has now paved the way back home into God's glorious presence where we might one day be received in his heavenly garden temple to worship him in the new Jerusalem. Christian, this ought to make you so happy and glad. And friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer or follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you need to know that you can become a part of this restoration in Jesus. There's an invitation for you to come to Jesus and to have your soul restored. The, the good news of Jesus Christ, it, it ought to be something like a dream to you. Almost too good to be true. But do you know why? Because like the returning exiles, receiving those riches from their neighbors... That's what we as sinners receive from Jesus Christ. He receives all of our sins and transgressions and is paid for them on the cross. And when we embrace him in faith, we receive the riches of his righteousness. All the ways in which he kept God's law, but we haven't. We receive Jesus' righteousness. And that's what allows us to stand as righteous in God's sight. The work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And all he asks for you to do is to turn from your sin. To return to him. And to embrace him, to receive him in faith. Friend, th this is glorious good news. That you can be forgiven. You should be astonished that God would forgive you for all of the sins that you've ever committed in thought, word, and deed. You should be astonished that God would forgive you for all the sins you would ever commit in thought, word, and deed. The, the reality is, is that God stands ready to restore you and receive you in Jesus Christ. And we have all committed treason against him. We've all sought to dethrone him. We've denied him. We've defiled ourselves in wickedness and sin. And we are totally undeserving. And yet, he says to us, I am pleased to crush my son, to exile him from the land of the living, so that you might be forever received and welcomed in my presence through my son. So come to me now. That's what the Lord Jesus says to you. Come to him now. Believe on him now and receive the restoration of your soul. Christian, you need to look back on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ regularly and ponder the great things that Jesus has done from you, for you. He has saved you from sin and hell and eternal exile from God's presence. Don't just ponder. Praise him. Praise him for his grace and favor. This is not a dream. What he has done in Jesus Christ is not too good to be true. It is true. The Lord Jesus has done great things for us. And we are glad. And by way of application, I think it's appropriate for us to regularly express this gladness in our lives. I have a friend who will often go about his house singing hymns at the top of his lungs. Um, and I've stayed with him a few times over the years and as he's going about the house singing these hymns, whenever he gets closer to you, it seems like he gets louder, intentionally so. And so one time I was staying with him and I asked his wife, is this, is this regular or does he just do this to bless me? And, uh, and she said, no, this is a very regular occurrence. This is what he does. Uh, he's so delighted in the Lord Jesus Christ and what Jesus has done for him that he's overflowing with praise to God. And that's a wonderful and stirring and challenging example, I think, to us all. We are prone to forget 
And so we need to purpose to regularly remember. That's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper regularly. In the Lord's Supper, we remember that Jesus has given his body for us and his blood for us. We're reminded in this meal all that Jesus has done for us. And Christian, I want to encourage you to make it um, a priority to gather with God's people, especially for the Lord's Supper. We celebrate that here the first Sunday of every month in the morning service. So I want to encourage you to make that a special priority uh, in, in your life. But there are other ways that we can remember what God has done for us, uh, such as recounting our, our testimonies. We do this, if you've joined this church, you know that we do this in your membership interview. It's one of the great privileges and joys that I have as a pastor, is I get to hear what great things God has done for you in your life. We spend probably even the bulk of our time in that membership interview just recalling and remembering God's goodness to us. That's a great way to remember. We do that in baptismal testimonies here. Wasn't it wonderful to hear several weeks ago a wonderful testimony of God's great work in the life of a brother and sister in Christ. That encourages us and strengthens us and to, to press on. These are great things to do. Think about um, remembering, pondering God's past acts of, of restoration and redemption when you're hospitable with one another. I've been so encouraged by how you have been very active in having each other over into your homes. As part of that time, keep that up. And as part of that time, ask each other, so how did you come to know the Lord? Tell, tell me about some time the Lord has done something great for you. Let's give praise to our God. That would be a wonderful thing to do as you gather in your homes. And, and children, young people, I would encourage you to be involved in remembering what great things the Lord has done. In fact, put your parents on the spot, maybe sometime this afternoon or this evening, and ask them, Mom, Dad, what, what great things has God done for you? Ask them to share their, their testimony with you, how they came to the Lord, how somebody shared the gospel with them. If you don't know their testimony, you should get to know their testimony. Ask your parents, what great things has God done for you? We need to regularly ponder what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. We need to think about his past power in our restoration. And this, this should spur us on to plead with him, to restore us again. So let's turn now and consider our second point. This is what we're reflecting on, plead with God to restore us again. This is the second half of the psalm. Follow along now as I read verses four to six. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Well, after having pondered God's past restoration, restoration of the past, these verses, they offer a, a prayer and a plea for God to restore the fortunes of his people in the present. We especially see that there in verse 4, that plea, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams, and then again. Now, the, the Negev was an especially dry area. Um, in truth, there weren't often streams in the Negev. There were usually dry riverbeds in the Negev. But all of that could change with a sudden, strong storm. And when that happened, suddenly the, the riverbeds of the Negev would, would be filled with water. And this would cause portions of the land to sprout with flowers and vegetation. And just as sudden and surprising as the captives' release was and their return was, so the psalmist prays for the Lord to suddenly refresh and restore his people, restore the fortunes of the people of God. And it seems like the people of God are in need of another restoration, doesn't it? I mean, you don't plead with God for such a restoration unless you're in need of one. 
They're, they're facing some difficulty, some burden, and they're, they're crying out for God to restore their fortunes again. They, they want to, uh, if we could put it this way, return to the dreamy days of, of delight. Now, originally, uh, this may have referred to a, a real physical need of the people of God. The, the prophet Haggai speaks of a time when the land struggled to produce a crop. Though the people of God had sown much, they had actually reaped very little. And so this crisis may have been a crisis of a, a harvest. Um, th- perhaps this psalm looks back on that time of crisis when the people of God needed God to, to turn nature's normal course to abundantly bless his people. This plea tells us that though the people of God had returned from exile, that does, mean, does not mean that all their problems had passed. Right? They still lived in a, a fallen world. And even if the original psalmist didn't have that drought in mind, we don't, do know that the Messiah had not yet come. They could have faced other problems too, like, like dryness of soul. Have you ever experienced that, some dryness of soul? Maybe a feeling of drought in your life. Or maybe the people of God experienced temptation to sin. Maybe you've experienced that too. The people of God were in need of restoration again, and so they, they pled with God again. And, and this, I think, is so true of our experience as Christians. We're saved, gloriously saved, wondrously saved. We're glad in Jesus, and yet difficulties in this life remain. We face uh, physical difficulties, financial difficulties, r- relational difficulties, spiritual difficulties. And like the people who first sang this song, we too need to plead with God to restore us again and again. And it may even be that the, the case that the plea of verse 4 is the pathway to that restoration. Maybe the plea of verse 4 is actually the, the pathway of restoration. For this is what we see is a heart directed back to God. Uh, pleading with God. Expressing our helplessness and our hope in Him. Have you ever done with that? Have you pled with God like that? Pled with God to restore your soul. Or to restore your soul again. Maybe you're thinking about following Jesus and you're weighing whether or not you want to do that. Ask Jesus to restore your soul. Maybe you've been following Jesus for a very long time. And you're not up, but you're down. Pray with the Lord Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit to restore your soul. To, to warm your heart with Him. Plead with Him. And plead with hope. The plea of verse 4, it seems to give way to a promise and an encouragement there in verses 5 and 6. If we can put it like this, we learn that those who weep are those who reap. Um, Sowing in sorrow leads to shouting with joy at the harvest. And the encouragement here seems to be to, to persist in pleading with God. Keep pleading with God. Keep pleading with Him to answer and restore and act. Though you are sorrowful, keep sowing our painful pleading it's our planting though we weep in sorrow perhaps over our condition or our difficulty maybe even weeping and mourning over our sin as we'll perhaps think about tonight from matthew's gospel maybe we're weeping in these ways still we keep scattering the seed hoping and trusting in the fullness of god's restoration we we have to keep pleading with god and we need to be patient too just as there is time between sowing and reaping in a normal harvest, so often it's the case that there's time between our asking and God's answering. We have to keep pleading with God. You know that, don't you, Christian, that there's often time between your asking and God's answering. So, so what do we do in that time, between the time between when we ask 
and God, God answers. Well, we keep pleading. We keep planting. We keep praying. It's interesting. Some have pointed out that the, the only actual water in this psalm uh, comes from, or the liquid, I should say, it comes from those who sow with tears. Now, that's the, the water that comes. Sometimes uh, we must weep a long time and pray and pray and pray. Perhaps there are those in your your life that you long to see come to know the Lord Jesus. And you are praying and pleading with God. You're concerned for their soul. Keep praying and keep pleading with God. I'm reminded of St. Augustine's mother who was for many, many years uh, vexed over her son's debauched lifestyle. She was encouraged to keep praying by these words. It cannot be the son of these tears should be lost. She cried over her son's state. Now, we've got to be careful here. Um, we, we, I don't think we should come to the conclusion that this is a prosperity psalm. Uh, we, we ought not take this psalm to be uh, something of a formula for us, right? That if we, if we get the right emotional disposition before God and ask Him, that He'll necessarily respond. It doesn't tell us, this psalm doesn't tell us that, um, that if we weep over our failing business, that we'll suddenly reap glorious prophets, right? This, this psalm doesn't tell us that if we weep over our struggling marriage, that we'll suddenly have perfect harmony. It, it doesn't tell us that if we weep over our, our loneliness, that we'll suddenly have scores of friends. It, it doesn't tell us that if we, if we weep over our, our sickness or our cancer or some disease that we're, we're wrestling with, it doesn't mean that we'll be suddenly healed. It does not tell us that if we weep over our children's souls that we will necessarily reap their salvation. No, part of the restoration that may very well be in view here is the restoration of our own souls, returning them back to God. Maybe God is restoring us to complete and utter dependence upon Him through our pleading. Maybe our hearts have been too far from Him. So through difficulty, He, he draws us near. He presses us into Himself. Maybe part of the way that He reaps a harvest in our lives is not necessarily through answering our prayers as we have prayed them. Maybe our petitions aren't always best and God only gives what is best. Maybe instead of a spouse, a a better marriage, a a business, a group of friends, a a saved child or healing from disease, maybe that isn't the, the restoration that we need most and that God is most involved with and active in in our lives. Maybe the restoration we need most is to know Christ in the fellowship of His sufferings and to have a greater longing for glory with Him. Thinking about this psalm, maybe what really needed to happen was not a mere restoration to the land, but a restoration of the hearts of the people of God to full faith in Him. The people of Israel, they may have returned home, but had they returned home to the Lord in their hearts. In fact, it strikes me that this, this really didn't happen as the psalmist perhaps hoped until Jesus came. And maybe the last, psalm, last verse of this psalm points in that direction too. I wonder if you noticed how the language of Psalm 126, verse 5 and 6, it moves from a people to a person. In verse 5, we have a people. We read, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. But then verse 6, do you see it portrays a person? He who goes out weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Why do we move from a people to a person? And who is this person? 
Maybe we move from a people to a person, perhaps to encourage individual Israelites. Right? So we, we plead this corporately for God to restore us, but maybe we should be individually engaged in pleading with God to restore us, to restore his kingdom. Uh, perhaps that's one of the reasons we move from a people to a person. But perhaps we move from a people to a person in order to give us a preview of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the Lord Jesus who ultimately restores the fortunes of his people. He was the one who went out with weeping. He went out sowing. He's the one who has reaped a harvest and continues to reap a harvest. When the Lord Jesus drew near to Jerusalem, I wonder if you remember what happened in Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 19, verse 41, he says this. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. And then I wonder if you remember in John's gospel, in John 19, Jesus told his disciples that his hour had come to be glorified. If you've been with us on Wednesday night, you know that that language, my hour has not yet come to be glorified, that language refers to Jesus going to the cross. So Jesus in John 19 says that my hour has come to be glorified. And then do you know what he says immediately after that to explain what he means by that? This is what Jesus says in John chapter 19, verse 24. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. Jesus, he went into Jerusalem to die on the cross and to have his body buried in the heart of the earth. And three days later, to use the language of the Apostle Paul, Jesus' resurrection was the first fruits of a harvest of resurrections still to come. And those resurrections, of course, would have come spiritually first and then physically on the last day. And I want us to think about those two resurrections, those two Harvests, as it were. We, we have the privilege, if you remember, of seeing something of the physical, or sorry, of the spiritual harvest on the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts. Uh, we'll get to look at this next week, Lord willing, when we begin our series in study of Acts. But perhaps you remember that Jesus' disciples at the beginning of the book of Acts, they asked Jesus a question. They asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom uh, to Israel? Jesus, he told his disciples that they would receive power from the Holy Spirit and be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and the ends of the earth. And Jesus' disciples then waited in Jerusalem, devoting themselves to prayer, or we could say pleading with God. And then the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost, which of course was a celebration of the annual harvest. Jesus poured out his Holy Spirit, Peter preached. And a harvest of the seed of 3,000 souls was reaped that day. Just thinking on Psalm 126, verse 6, right? Jesus coming home with shouts of joy. He must have been so delighted to see so many people receive him in faith on that day. And the plea of Psalm 126 and the, the sower of Psalm 126, 6 seems to be most fully realized in the person of Jesus Christ and the harvest of souls that he's bringing about through the preaching of the gospel. And here's what we need to realize about this plea of Psalm 126 and the the planting of the gospel. It must continue. And often it will need to continue with much weeping. Sowing the seed of the gospel is often very difficult. It's very trying relationally, emotionally, and spiritually. And we need to plead with the Lord to give us the grace to keep pursuing this. We should pray for the Lord to restore our souls, to revive our souls in the work that he has set before us as his disciples. He has commissioned us to to go for him, to to scatter the seed of his gospel. One of the questions that we need to ask ourselves is, are we going about this work? Are we going about sowing the seed? 
Maybe, maybe we're delayed or we're uh, inhibited in some ways because our, our own souls are parched and dry and weary. Maybe then we need to plead for the Lord to restore our souls with the refreshing streams of His Spirit, like streams in the Negev. And where He gives us energy and refreshment by His Spirit, we must throw off complacency and put on courage to share Christ and Him crucified. You know, we cannot wring our hands in worry over a world or culture slipping or sliding into hell. We need to realize that right now, our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends are actually presently under the condemnation of the Holy God. They need to be redeemed now, rescued now. They will face His wrath on the last day if they do not turn from their sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the, the most recent statistics available to us uh, tell us that only 3.8% of the people in Arlington County uh, understand themselves to be uh, evangelical believers and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. That means for every 100 people you meet on the sidewalk, not even four of them are savingly united in the Lord Jesus Christ and going to heaven. There are so many who are lost around us, and we need to plead for the Lord to restore our, our passion to see them saved. And this should make us weep. This should energize us for the work of spreading the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need, perhaps in our own selves, a spiritual awakening and in the community around us. We must plead with God to reap a harvest of souls among us and around us. And if we have no desire for that, no heart for that, we must ask the Lord to restore our souls like those streams in the Negev. We must ask our God to make us full of life and vitality in the Lord Jesus Christ so that we can offer eternal life to our friends and neighbors and co-workers. Let's plead with God to restore a spiritual sensitivity in our own hearts and in the hearts and souls of those in Alcova Heights, that's the neighborhood surrounding this church building in Arlington and in Northern Virginia and even in the broader D.C. region. We should ask our God to allow us to see more conversions, a spiritual harvest, not so that the name of this church may be made great, but so that we may shout with joy at the exaltation of Jesus Christ receiving the worship that he deserves. Let us look back. Let's ponder the great moves of the Holy Spirit in the past and pray for him to move again. Look back to Pentecost and pray, Lord, do that again. Look back to the first and second great awakenings in America and pray for the Lord to do it again. Look back to the New York revival of 1858, a revival that began with one man praying and pray for the Lord to do it again. How can we be involved, practically speaking, in this pleading for the Lord to act in this way? Well, pray for yourself and others. Pray for your own heart, for the Lord to give you a passion and a burden to share Christ. Uh, ask uh, the Lord to save, by name, un unbelieving family members or friends or, or co-workers. Ask your small group to join you in praying for them by name. And ask for your small group to encourage you and maybe perhaps hold you accountable in talking to them about Jesus week by week. Come to our monthly prayer meeting on the, the first Sunday of every month. So tonight at 5 o'clock in our prayer meeting, one of the things that we're going to pray about and that we always pray about. So we're still, we're still asking. We're waiting for God to answer. One of the things we'll be asking is for God to raise up pastors and missionaries from this congregation. And that the Lord would give us boldness and fruitfulness in our evangelism. So Let's pray for these things. Pray especially for this neighborhood. Pray for the Alcova Heights neighborhood. Uh, years ago, 
Scores of people used to walk to this church building from this neighborhood. They lived here. Let's pray for the Lord to do that again. To cause many to return to walking to this building. Maybe pray that the Lord would restore the fortunes of this church once again by sending scores of people on foot from the neighborhood. Pray for the children of this congregation. For the youth, the young adults. Maybe join the fray and teach a Sunday school class. Um, our Sunday school teachers, I think they've been teaching since September or something like that. Uh, maybe some of them could use a break in the summer. Uh, we usually have summer teachers jump in and help. If you're willing to do that, uh, jump in there and share the gospel with the, the young people growing up in our church. And I'm, I'm so encouraged by how many of you who are not, not even teaching in those classes, you will see a young person and then you'll engage them and talk to them about the Lord Jesus. Keep at it, keep after it, and keep praying for them. Let's be encouraged and motivated uh, to pray for these things. Let's pray through the membership directory. If you don't know what to pray for a fellow member, pray that the Lord would give them boldness to share Jesus that day. Uh, pray that he would give them a passion for that and the Lord would be pleased to allow them to see fruit in their evangelism. Let's be encouraged by what God has done in the past. Let's pray for God to do a great work in our present. And let's also be encouraged and motivated by what God will one day do in the future. We've talked about that spiritual harvest that we're praying to see brought about. But there is also a physical resurrection harvest to come. One day, on the last day, the Lord Jesus will, in the words of our text, come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. And there's no doubt about it. As, as verse 6 says, he shall do it. Christian, he will bring you home. And that is a glorious hope that you have. And it ought to encourage you and spur you on this day. Jesus' resurrection, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, was a resurrection, a first fruits of a harvest of resurrections still to come. In other words, those, those resurrections, they come first spiritually, but then physically on the last day. And, and that's what I want us to, to think about as we conclude. Uh, one day, the Lord Jesus, he will return. And he will raise his people up from their graves in a glorious resurrection harvest. And we will be perfectly restored in body and soul. Never again to suffer depravity, disease, decay, or death. And he will wipe away, as the book of Revelation says, every tear from our eyes. Our hearts will never be dry or weary again. For he has promised that he will satisfy our thirst from the spring of the water of life without payment. As one sister has put it, we will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. He has done great things, we will say together. We will feast and weep no more. Until that day, ponder what our God has done in the past at the cross of Jesus Christ. Ponder what he will yet do at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and plead with him, plead with him to restore your soul and the souls of others for the glory of Christ. Let's pray for that now. Let's pray together.